Uh, kids, you are dismissed off to class. Thanks for being in here and worshiping with us. The rest of you, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. You know, it's a, a complicated thing sitting down at a table. Who do you sit next to? Who do you avoid? And if you're the host and you're setting out place cards, it becomes a bigger challenge. Are they going to argue? Have these two worked out their differences? Thankfully, we have this amazing invention called online invitations. So that way, you're able to see who's attending and who isn't. And with that info, you can decide whether to show up at all. Right? Now, I'm being a little facetious. Because though this does happen from time to time, it hopefully isn't the norm for you. However, back in Jesus' day, this was not only normal, but also expected. And Jesus addresses it in our passage today. We're continuing in our series on the book of Luke. And this Sunday, we're looking at Luke 14, verses 1 through 24. Let's go ahead and stand in honor of God's word as we read the passage. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not respond to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will be Begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined a table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. 
And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Lord, um, thank you for your word. Thank you just for the opportunity um, of getting to dive into your word together. God, as we've just been reflecting on this morning, we've been reflecting on presence. And we're going to talk even more about that now. Um, But God, thank you that you are present, that you are here with us. God, help us to be attentive to, to your words, to which you have to say to us this morning. Get me out of the way so that you get to be glorified, so that you get to be honored, so that people in this room get to hear directly from you. God, you've got something to say to us. Help us listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. So this morning's sermon is called At the Table. And it's called that partly because the entire setting of this passage is at a table. And it's partly because there are lots of questions and challenges around who should be invited and welcomed. And partly because people think that they, that they have a seat, but they actually don't. But it's important to catch that being at the table is actually a metaphor, especially in verse 15, uh, verse 15 on. Uh, Look at chapter 13, verse 29 from our passage last week. It says, And people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. So when we're talking about being at the table, also think of being with Jesus. This whole setting is with Jesus. There are misconceptions about what it means to be with Jesus, about who gets to be with Jesus. We're going to unpack this some more as we go through the passage. I just wanted you to have that in mind as we go, at the table, being with Jesus. Let me start by giving you some context. Remember that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's not in any hurry, but that's his focus and direction. Look also back at verse 22 of chapter 13. It says, He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. There's no sense of urgency in that, but it's very clear that there's a direction. Jesus has his eyes set and fixed on Jerusalem because he knows ultimately that's what he's here to do. He's here to go to Jerusalem. He's here to sacrifice himself. And he's on his way there. Now, this passage here in chapter 14, this is the third of three interactions recorded in the homes of Pharisees around a table. In all three, he had conflict with them, yet they still invited him to eat with them. There's a community group question that invites you to explore why Jesus uh, keeps getting invited. And I actually got to preach on the second of these interactions. And as I said then, there's a lot of lessons or uh, or, uh, inferences that we could draw from these interactions. But instead of drawing what we think we see, it's more important to get after what Luke was trying to tell his readers. And one reason he brings up these interactions is to show the reader that Jesus didn't give up on the Pharisees. Jesus consistently invites them to change. He's not just having the conversation to get them madder at him or to condemn them in front of others or to just show others that Pharisees are doing things wrong. He cares about them too. 
We will see this as we go through this passage. Yes, Jesus is admonishing the Pharisees, but he's also inviting them to change. Now, a little more context. Meals at that time were a way that people determined social status among others. It was based on the idea of a symposium. And the symposium was started in ancient Greece, and it was a meal that was followed by all this conversation. People would linger and talk and maybe share poetry or songs or, or different insights, and they sit and they dialogue for hours and hours. The Romans picked up on this idea too and, and started having meals of the same like. So it was, it's very likely that as they came and occupied Israel, they brought that concept with them. So it's very similar to the concept and idea of a symposium. So the Pharisees would have these symposium-style meals and invite people only at their level or higher. It says in this passage that it's at a house of a ruler of the Pharisees, so a guy that's pretty high up. So it's uh, very good to assume, we, we can infer that everyone that was there was at that level or higher. Now, here's the reason why. Their, their thought process was the more elite people at your meal, the more important or elite you became. The, excuse me, the invite list mattered. It was important to them. Also, where you sat at this meal mattered. The seating would be in a U shape around the table with the host kind of at the center of the U, right at the head. And the closer to the head of the table you sat, the more important you were. So people would clamor for the more important seats. Also, in that day and age, an invitation came along with a string attached, an expectation of a return invitation. So you wouldn't invite someone that wouldn't be able to return the favor. That's why the invitations would go out to people at your level or higher. I'm not going to invite someone that's lower than me because they're probably not going to be able to invite me back. I'm only going to invite people that are going to be able to invite me back and have an even better feast, an even more meal, and da-da-da-da-da. So a good return invite mattered. And a snubbed invitation was a statement regarding that person's social status. That your meal didn't matter. That you didn't matter. All that said, it makes Jesus' invitation a little more curious. Again, something to discuss with your community group. Now, regardless of why, Jesus is there and engages in a conversation that has a natural progression to it. Let me show you this progression. The passage begins with the Pharisees focusing on how well they follow the rules and looking at whether Jesus follows the rules or not. After Jesus heals the man, they begin to question what are the rules? And as they're wondering that, they're following the social rules of where to sit, and Jesus calls that into question. He further pushes the envelope by challenging the idea that you invite only so that you can get invited back, which causes them to ask, well, hold on, what's important? Jesus then takes the conversation to a whole new level and calls into question the assumption that they are guaranteed a seat at the table leaving them with the question, is there a seat for me? What's beautiful is that though there's a change of scene in the next verse, the progression continues as Jesus then challenges what it means to follow him. 
Now, I know I just gave away all of my blank fill-ins, for those of you that like filling in blanks. But I wanted you to see the progression right from the beginning so that you know where we're headed and can follow along. All right, let's dive in deeper. So first of all, what are the rules? This meal happens on a Sabbath. This is the sixth of seven times that Sabbath is brought up in Luke. And the fifth of five times that Jesus does or allows on the Sabbath something that is questioned. This interaction is unique in that there is no verbal response recorded from anyone watching. And we're going to come back to that significance in just a minute. But the idea of Sabbath is clearly an important theme to Luke as he brought it up so often. One of the CG questions invites you to look at these five interactions to find similarities and differences. Remember that Luke is showing his readers that Jesus is the good doctor. And part of what Jesus did was to come and heal their misconceptions around the Sabbath. The Sabbath was never designed to be a day of rule following. It was designed to be a day of rest. In Genesis 2, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host with them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. In Exodus 20, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What are the rules? Simple. Rest. Healing the man provided him rest. He no longer had to worry about or manage his illness. Saving your child or ox that has fallen into a well provides both you and him rest. You don't need to worry if your son or ox will survive, and your son or ox won't need to spend the rest of the day treading water. I mean, isn't that work in and of itself anyways, right? It's important for you to have a Sabbath, a day each week that you get to rest. Make it a holy day, a day where God is worshipped. There are always more things to be done. The task list is always there. Be sure in the busyness of the Silicon Valley to take time to rest before God. Psalm 46 is a very busy psalm. There's lots of action. A lot is going on. God is moving and doing amazing things. In the midst of the busyness, he says in verse 10, be still and know that I am God. A lot of people will quote that verse by itself, and even by itself, it's a great verse. But when you catch the fact that it's in the midst of all this busyness, it carries a little bit more weight to it. In the midst of everything that's going on, be still and know that I am God. That is what the Sabbath is designed for. That is what you need to do. Worship God by resting before him. 
by being still before him. There are two other things worth noting here. First of all, the man with dropsy. So dropsy is an old-fashioned, less technical term for edema. And dropsy is fluid retention and swelling that can be caused by many different things. So even more than not being sure why Jesus was at the meal, we really don't know why this man was here. Because he would definitely not have been invited to the meal. There's no way he could be repaying anything like that. He was not one of the social elite. In fact, having dropsy was looked at as unclean and as a punishment for sins. So regardless of why he's there, whether he was brought in by the Pharisees as a way to trap Jesus, or he just snuck and weaseled his way in, Jesus healing the man wasn't just about physical healing. Rather, in healing the man, Jesus was stating that the man was no longer unclean. Jesus was also extending forgiveness to the man. No longer would others be looking at the man and assume that he's being punished for sins. His punishment had been taken away. So that's one thing to catch. Another thing worth noting is that there's a shift of authority. The silence from the Pharisees is worth noting. At the beginning of the meal, they were watching him carefully. They were waiting for him to make a mistake. And and his healing of the man on the Sabbath was a perfect opportunity for them to point out his error. Ah, ah, Jesus, you're not supposed to heal on the Sabbath. Guess what? They've done this four times before. That's not supposed to happen on the Sabbath. But their silence on the matter shifted the authority from them, the social and religious elite at the time, and shifted it to Jesus. In saying nothing, they were communicating that they didn't have an answer. They were deferring to Jesus' answer. They were deferring to Jesus' authority. This is important as it gives more weight to the teaching Jesus offers after this interaction. It thus has a higher likelihood of having an impact in their lives. Now they're not listening to judge or to trap. They're listening to learn. All right, let's move on to what is important. So not only is there a shift in authority, but there's also a shift in who is watching who. This encounter started with the Pharisees watching Jesus, remember? And now Jesus is watching them. It says in verse 7, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. The basic idea here is that Jesus is pointing out the error of two different actions from the Pharisees. First of all, in verses 8 to 10, he's telling them to rethink how they approach seating arrangements. Having the top seat is not as important as you think. So don't risk the potential for being humbled in front of others. In Proverbs 16, it says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. He's trying to help them think of others before themselves. Putting yourself in the top seat is self-focused. And then in verses 12 to 14, he takes a step back from the event and tells them to rethink how they approach even the invitations. The goal is not to get invited back. That's not what's important. Rather, Jesus shows that what's important when hosting a feast is inclusion instead of improving social status. 
And Jesus points toward a heavenly reward in verse 14 instead of seeking an earthly reward. It brings to mind Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust to destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus is telling them that the heavenly reward is important, not the earthly reward of invitation. Inviting so that you can get a good invitation back is self-focused. In both of these, Jesus is trying to help them shift their focus from themselves to others. Now, there's something else important to catch in verses 8 to 10, also around the idea of what's important. Take a look at verses 8 through 10, and let me ask you this question. I want a response. Whose opinion matters? Whose opinion makes a difference? The host. That's right. The opinion of the host is the only one that matters. It's the host that arranges the seating. It's the host that decides who moves up and who moves down. But they are all focused on each other. What's everyone else thinking about me? None of that matters. What is important is what the host thinks of me. Who's the host at the final meal? It's Jesus. His opinion of you is the only one that matters. The opinion of others doesn't change your presence at the table. So don't waste your time pursuing the approval of others. That isn't important. What is important is Jesus' approval. And he's offered that to you free and clear. That's what his sacrifice on the cross was all about. He paid the penalty for your sin. He offered you forgiveness. All you have to do is receive it. If you want to know more about that, please come talk to me after the service. Man, I'd love to share more about that. The crux of this section is verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, it would be really easy to read that as a formula, but it's actually information around cause and effect. If your mindset is, well, okay, I want to be exalted, so if I humble myself and sit in a further away seat, then I'll be exalted. That's what I have to do to be sure to get exalted. Like, my goal is to be exalted, so I'm going to be humble so that I can be exalted. If that's your mindset, you're missing the whole point. And in doing so, you're not being humble. The same is true of verse 14. It's not saying, don't worry, you're going to get your blessing for what you do. It'll just come later than you expect. Rather, it's saying that God knows your heart and he'll bless accordingly. If you're trying to use these as a formula, you will not get what you're seeking because you're seeking with wrong motives. Rather, Jesus is trying to let them and us know that when we focus on the right things, there are benefits that will come. This is just like any parent that encourages a child toward a right action and tells them what benefits will come by pursuing the right action. Son, it's a good idea to take a shower. Then people won't sit so far away from you, right? You're, you're encouraging them. You're not saying like, this is why you should take a shower, but just like this is one of the benefits of taking a shower. There's something else that is so important to catch in verse 11. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, yes, Jesus is instructing us to be humble, but he's doing so much more. He is showing us humility. If our Lord and Savior, the one who created us, the one who brought us into being, the one who is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal, if he can humble himself, how dare I ever pursue the kingdom of self? I have no right to pursue the kingdom of self. I am unworthy. I also have no need to pursue the kingdom of self because I've been redeemed. And those of you who call Jesus your Lord and Savior have also been redeemed. There's no need to build the kingdom of self. We are a part of his kingdom. So when he says, everyone who humbles himself will be exalted, he's talking about himself first. He's the example. So then we get to the question, is there a seat for me? I love this little <laughs> transition that happens right here. Because Jesus just got done trying to communicate what's important and what isn't. He ends that portion of the discussion by talking about a reward that's coming at the resurrection of the just. And then we have <laughs> verse 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, uh, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. I feel like this is one of those comments where someone's trying to jump in and doesn't really know what they're saying, but like, I want to be a part of the conversation. I heard a word that I recognize. I'm going to jump in and kind of falls flat on their face, you know? Peter had this problem. If you remember the transfiguration uh, back in Luke 9, you know, here Jesus is transfigured and, and Moses and Elijah there. And Peter says, Master, it's good that we're here. Uh, let's make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And it even says in scripture, not knowing what he said, totally bumbling over his words and like, I'm going to try. And he falls flat on his face. My son Gabriel had this problem. And I, and I asked him if it was okay to share this, okay? Um, I was practicing some Hebrew vocabulary. And I said a word in Hebrew, and Gabe asked me, Dad, what does that mean? I said, to bring forth or to bear. And he goes, I like bears. <laughs> nope, you missed it, pal. <laughs> but towards the uh, idea of humility, I, I have this problem too. I was in eighth grade and I heard my teacher and one of my classmates talking in Spanish. And with a solid year of Spanish under my belt, I felt confident that I could jump in somewhere. When I finally heard a word I recognized, the word corazón, which means heart, I said with full confidence, ¿Qué corazón? 
thinking I was saying, what heart? Little did I know that que corazón is actually an endearing term, saying, what dear, what sweetie? <laughs> and in the same way that my teacher and classmates chuckled at what I said, and in the same way that I chuckled at Gabe's confident, I like bears, I'm sure Jesus may have chuckled a little at this guy's comment as he gently engaged and helped him see what he was missing. For the man's comment carried with it an incorrect assumption that Jesus uses this parable to correct. The assumption was that if you were Jewish, there was a seat for you. Paul points to this misunderstanding in Romans 9. Uh, keep your finger in Luke and turn over there really quick. Romans 9. Romans 9, starting in verse 4. It says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This was the assumption. If you were born of the right race, you were in. But let's keep reading. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Paul is communicating that you aren't guaranteed a seat because you had the right parents. There's something else going on. Now back to Luke. Jesus is letting the man and everyone else present know that not everyone that thought they were in the kingdom of God actually had a seat at the table. He just said the same thing in the passage we looked at last week. Look at verse 24 of chapter 13. It says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. He uses this parable in chapter 14 to show that what matters is presence. Now, before we dive a little bit more in, it's worth asking this question. Is the man hosting the banquet in this parable supposed to represent God? In many parables Jesus tells, he later gives an interpretation, either to his disciples or to others around. And in many parables, based on the situation at hand or the context, it's plainly obvious what the point of the parable is. But this one could be interpreted in two ways. So I want to show you why I think this parable does represent who is welcome in God's kingdom. But first, let me show you why people believe the man doesn't represent God. If you take every part of the parable and connect it to God, there are some glaring inconsistencies. It could be taken to say that God invited the Pharisees into his kingdom first, and when they turned him down, they made him angry, and then he pursued the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. In other words, those people were his second choice. Also, if taken at face value, not a single invited guest would be welcome into his kingdom. So some see these inconsistencies, and they'll interpret the parable as an instruction on how to welcome any uh, and all to any feast. And if it's an extension of the previous uh, instruction on inviting those, uh, oh, sorry, as if it's an extension of the previous instruction on inviting those that can't repay you. Now, it's a reasonable interpretation, but I don't think it's a right understanding of what Jesus is trying to say. Here's why. First of all, this parable is direct response to someone's comment about who will be eating in the kingdom of God. Remember what the guy said that was fumbling over his words. He said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. 
So it doesn't make a lot of sense that Jesus would respond to that by talking about who you should invite to your dinner party. Also, Jesus just spoke to that topic. He just got done telling them to welcome those that can't repay you. No need to return to that topic. Instead, it makes way more sense for Jesus to respond to the man's comment, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God, by showing who will and won't be in God's kingdom with a parable. But what about, with, what about these inconsistencies? What do we do with those? Well, first of all, remember that not every bit of a parable means something. When Jesus tells the parable of the widow that nags the judge until he can't take it anymore and finally gives her what she wants, Jesus isn't saying that God will cave if we nag him enough, but he'll do it to get us off his back, right? That's reading too much into the parable. Or in the parable of the prodigal son, when he goes and starts feeding the pigs, we don't need to figure out what do the pigs represent? Again, reading too much into it. In this parable, reading into the anger of the master or reading into the multiple levels of invitation. Ooh, first they went to streets and lanes. And then after that, um, they, they went to highways and, and, and hedges. What does it mean? No, that's reading too much into the parable. Also, taking verse 24 literally is reading too much into the parable. We know that there were some Pharisees that were welcomed into the kingdom, notably Nicodemus. But regarding the, other, the order of who's invited first, Jesus is speaking to their understanding of reality. As far as the Pharisees are concerned, they have a seat locked down at the table. So Jesus is speaking directly to that assumption by showing what the good host does when they don't show up and take their seat. He isn't saying that he, being the good host, is waiting for their response and then acting after they turn him down. Rather, he's saying that a good host wants a full table. He wants people that want to be there. And so he will fill his table with those that want to be there. He's communicating in a way that they would understand. And in doing so, he's showing his love for them. He's showing his desire that they would change and come accept their seat. Now, with that understanding, there are two things that this parable teaches us. The first is that presence matters. There were seats ready for these people. But for each of them, there was something that was more important to them than being at the banquet. So in turning down the invitation, they were communicating their priorities. And their priority was not presence. It was something else. Presence matters. Back then, what hindered presence was a new field, or oxen, or a new wife. Today, there are lots of things that can hinder presence. Here's one of the main culprits. Yes, many of us know the frustration of wanting to talk with someone that's sitting right across from you, and they're staring at their phone. Honesty time, I'm totally guilty of this. And yes, there's a lot that can be said for how smartphones hinder interpersonal presence. But they also hinder our presence with God. Think about the in-between moments. Waiting for a ride, standing in line, sitting at home with nothing to do. What do you do? You whip out your phone. You let it occupy your mind. What if you filled those moments instead with conversations with God? 
Maybe you pray over the conversation you're about to have. Or you pray for your family or your friends. Or you just thank God for your day. Don't let anything hinder your presence with God. And I'm not saying this because I'm super good at it. I, I wrote that down earlier this week, and then I had to remind myself of it just as I went through the rest of my week, catching myself doing that same thing and going, nope, I'm not going to let that hinder my presence with God. So that's the first thing. Presence matters. Here's the second thing, and this is just so beautiful. Your presence is desired. Your presence is desired. The master desired that every seat would be filled, that nobody would miss out on the banquet. We're told this in 1 Timothy. It says, This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, one part of the parable worth noting is that people are compelled to come in, in verse 23. Remember that invitations were expected to be returned. So the poor and the marginalized were expected to turn down an invitation because they knew they could never respond in kind. So when the servant approached many of these people and invited them, they turned down the invitation. They wanted to come, but they knew there was no way they could repay what they were being offered. So it took insistence on the part of the host to communicate that they were wanted at the feast and that they didn't have to return the invitation. Remember that Jesus had already told them that you invite with no expectation of being repaid. And in the same way, the whole lesson about taking the lesser seat was really pointing to what Jesus had done for us. So the lesson about inviting without an expectation of repayment is ultimately pointing to what Jesus has done for us. Jesus doesn't invite those that he knows can repay him. If he did that, not a single person would be invited. Not one of us could ever repay God for what he's done for us. Psalm 116.12 says, What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? So by their understanding, those listening would expect to turn down the invitation. Now, I, I can't repay it, so I'm not going to go. But Jesus doesn't want us to turn down his invitation. He wants our presence. And so he persistently invites. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Friends, Jesus desires your presence at the table. He wants a relationship with you, and he's invited you in. He's removed all the barriers that would keep you from accepting the invitation. Will you respond to his invitation? Will you be present? Take a seat. There's one just...
God, I'm humbled by the fact that you've invited me. I know at times I get wrapped up into the, oh, well, how high of a seat do I have? Or how well am I doing? And I compare myself to others and look around. None of that matters. Your opinion of me is the only one that matters, Lord. Help me to let go of these other things. Help me to accept the invitation. God, there are some in this room that have never accepted an invitation from you. And today is the day that they need to do it for the first time. They need to say, yes, Lord, I'm going to come. I'm going to sit at the table. I know I'm not worthy. I know I don't belong here. But I'm accepting your invitation. Accepting the fact that you don't expect me to repay you. Because I can't. God, I pray that they would today accept that invitation and show up and just sit at the table, that they would sit with you. God, there are others in this room today that have been walking with you for a long time. And God, sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes we forget that what's so important is presence, is just sitting with you. And we let other things get in the way of presence. We let other things hinder our presence with you. God, help us to identify those things and get them out of the way. (sighs) So that we can just come and sit at the table. So that we can come and just sit with you. God, you've offered us the absolute best, which is presence. Help us to accept that.